Like he says, society requires consensus as an indispensable condition, but consensus to be productive requires that each individual contribute independently out of their own experience and insight. And that's one of those things where we have tension. One person is talking about the fairness and caring and the disparities in wealth between us and them. And the other person is talking about the sanctity and the purity and, um, you know, keeping this great country the way it is. Welcome to Philosophy AU, the show where we analyse and explore the modern world through a philosophical lens. We're going to walk through the biggest questions thoughtfully and honestly, getting back to the roots of philosophy so that we can use wisdom and knowledge to actually live a better life. Thank you so much for joining me, and I hope you enjoy the show. Wild animals, lacking imagination, almost never do disastrously stupid things out of false perceptions of the world about them. But humans create artificial disasters for themselves when their ideology makes them unable to perceive where their own self-interests lie. E.T. Jane's. Excellent. Um, so welcome again. We're back with another podcast at Philosophy AU um, with Linda, obviously. How's it going? Yeah, really well. Thanks, Josh. And I thought that would be an interesting way to start today's conversation. Yeah, beautiful. So we're going to talk about the the out group, I guess, is what this conversation is going to center around. Uh, it's going to talk a little bit about uh, political differences, but that's probably a little bit reductive, probably more so different visions of the world and how they manifest and a little bit about tribalism um, and tolerance as well. And I guess we might venture out into argumentation um, and having thoughtful disagreements. Uh, so I think we wanted to start just by referencing which I think we have referenced before in a previous blo- uh, in a previous conversation, the amazing blog by Scott Alexander, um, which is called "I Can Tolerate Anything Except the Out Group." Um, so this is a yeah, this is a fantastic blog for both of us. Um, obviously, you passed it on to me at some stage, and uh, I just remember reading it, and you know, as Scott Alexander does a lot of the time, like really perhaps like shines a light on something that you'd always that had always been there but you might not have been able to like put your finger on what it was or you know it's just one of those realizations where it seems so obvious after someone points it out um and that was definitely something that this blog did um so what about for you like what was what were some of your feelings and like what was some of the large effects or immediate effects of reading that for you yeah, so like he touched on, um, this essay, I guess is probably the right word for it. It's I think it's north of uh, 10,000 words. So, like, you will need to dedicate 40-odd minutes to reading it if you are going to read it. But probably just from the outset, I would recommend all readers... Uh, sorry, all listeners read it. Um, we'll try and address some of the main points today and, and give you the crux of what we found insightful about it but it is like packed dense with insights um i think probably like the first place to start is i think 
Alexander um, starts it off beautifully by referencing one of the the Father Brown stories. Um, and the crux of it is there was a murder um, where this basically, um, there was two brothers and the good sort of noble brother murdered his good for nothing, um, you know, good for nothing brother, essentially. And um, the members of the town or the village basically sort of forgave him for that because, you know, he killed the good for nothing brother and the priest basically said, like, I will only forgive you on the grounds that you repent and pray and are remorseful and these things that, you know, Catholicism sort of uses as avenues for, um, yeah, repentance. However, as it turns out, the um, it turned out not that the good-for-nothing brother was murdered by you know, the more noble of the brothers, it turns out that the good-for-nothing brother actually murdered the noble brother and then stole his identity. And basically this causes the village people to um, work themselves into an uproar and want him, you know, lynched or killed or, um, you know, something of this nature. And the priest is the only... Uh, consistent member of the entire town and says, no, I will forgive you provided you repent and, you know, pay for your sins. Like the exact same kind of, um, yeah, method of redemption that was offered to uh, the brother previously when it was thought that the good brother was the one who committed the murder. So that's all kind of, a lengthy way into this conversation, but what um, Alexander does in the the essay is talks about the concept of tolerance and forgiveness. What the um, the townspeople did originally was they thought they forgave the the brother for the murder, and you know we accept you like humans are fallible. Um, yeah, you know, and then they lectured the priest on the necessity of forgiveness and the virtues of forgiveness. But then when it came to the revelation that the the good-for-nothing brother was the one who was actually the one who committed the murder, all of a sudden they were incapable of forgiveness. And what Alexander speaks about is they had what they conceived of as forgiveness, but what they meant was no harm done. And they were they were actually just accepting what someone did because it didn't actually offend them that much. Mm. And when the thing, it was revealed that the thing um, had occurred that did offend them and that really caused them pain, they were incapable of forgiveness. So I've sort of said a lot there, so I'll mm. pass it over to yeah. you. For so right. yeah, it's just essentially talking about that uh, it really doesn't take any forgiveness or tolerance um, to say forgive someone that had no effect on you, like if you really, um, if you're quite an open, liberal-minded person, an accepting person, and that's your predisposition as as a human, um, and you've always sort of been that way, then 
you know, I guess for lack of a better term, you don't deserve any virtue credit points for, say, tolerating gays or tolerating other races. Those virtue points and that, um, I guess, uh, that higher virtue status should go to the person that it really is a struggle for them to tolerate um, other, say, races or, you know, other genders or whatever it may be. So the point, I guess, that we're talking around is that um, if if it's really no strain on you, you deserve no extra credit for uh, for yeah, say giving that forgiveness or giving that or showing that tolerance. Um, I'll, I'll quickly read one example here again. It's uh, just slightly different, but along the same lines. Um, so it starts, Master, <laughs> I've been tolerant of innumerable gays, lesbians, bisexuals, asexuals, blacks, Hispanics, Asians, transgender people, and Jews. How many virtue points have I earned for my meritorious deeds? And the master says, none at all. And he says, the emperor somewhat put out, he demands to know why. <laughs> and then he, he says, well, what do you think of gay people? Um... What do you think I am? Some sort of homophobic bigot? Of course I have nothing against gay people. And then he replies, thus you gain no merit by tolerating them. So again, just speaking to that point that it's actually no effort to tolerate them. So why um, why would that be considered a virtue in that instance? Um, and I think, yeah, I think this is probably something that a lot of people, that probably something that is quite common is... Um, you know, that feeling of virtue when you're doing something that comes almost effortless to you anyway, um, like with, like you've sort of spoken about before, you know, it's not really a, an accomplishment for yourself to be, say, like sitting down and reading because that's just something that comes easy to you. Um, that an accomplishment for you would be like, yeah, going out and, uh, I don't know, whatever, going out on a Friday night and meeting people that you've never met before. Um, something like that. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of good stuff in that. Um, I liked how you um, managed to avoid saying Bodima or however the name's <laughs> pronounced. <and he laughs> Just avoided essay. the names. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I guess maybe this would be a good point to bring in what one of Alexander's main points throughout the essay is is that political tribalism is uh, like what he sort of circles back to a lot of times and he describes or sort of without directly referencing it or he does sorry directly reference it but he speaks about red group uh, the red tribe sorry is representing Um, American Republicans and conservatives and the blue tribe is representing Democrats. And he sort of in passing also says there's a bit of a spin-off gray tribe, which is sort of libertarians. And I think he characterizes them well and possibly we can read that out in a little bit, but um, something that he hints at multiple times though, is that, the concept of, again, forgiveness, open-mindedness, tolerance is very popular in American Democrats or, say, Australian um, Labor Party. Or Greens. <laughs> um, or Greens, yes. 
However, they are like almost incapable of being open-minded and accepting and tolerant when it comes to the red tribe, which is again, American Republicans slash conservatives or Australian liberals. And this sort of warring um, between political tribes and political factions and just this, this hatred that we generate towards one another, he, um, well, like the quote kind of outlined at the start is like, this costs us like our own self-interest. Like we are so aggressive and tribalistic towards people that we live in the exact same country as and people who share extremely similar values and interests um yet we can't get out of our own way when it comes to working with them Hmm. um yeah so i think that's yeah i guess kind of what we wanted to draw attention to i'm forgetting my yeah i think um while you get that point back an interesting little thought experiment and uh again this sort of speaks to the whole idea of the blog and this was one of the big moments for me reading it was how we're not tolerant of things that are similar to us but we are tolerant that that sorry we are tolerant of things that are widely different from us and so what he's talking about in the blog is that what makes an outgroup is proximity plus small differences. So again, it's not the, say, the the Indians or the whoever, um, I don't know, Thai people fill in the race that is far away from Caucasian that we're intolerant of. It's the, say, if you're like quite a left-leaning liberal person, it's the bogan down the road that you're extremely intolerant of, isn't it? And just like run through that thought experiment with yourself at the moment because I would say it's probably quite like a a selection bias thing of people that are listening to this right now that, you know, they're probably somewhat decently educated, probably, um, you know, weird, like Western educated, industrial, rich and democratic. Um, So, yeah, there's obviously a selection bias of people that are listening to this at all. Um, that they are probably going to be the type of people that are slightly left-leaning and that would mean probably, at least according to the premise we're talking about today, intolerant of, say, like really hard um, right-leaning, which in, in Australia, you know, that might be thought of as like, you know, the bogan that's extremely intolerant of uh, other races. Um, but I guess... Why I think why that's like such a it was mind blowing concept because I guess yeah when you think about the out group you would tend to think about complete opposite but the interesting part about this premise is it's not the complete opposite that we that we're intolerant of it's just that really slight difference um, to go off on a really small tangent I have an interesting thought that it like it's about the parts of ourself that we're trying to squash so you know. Uh, you you probably don't want to say it, but there's probably little parts in you that are slightly intolerant of, um, you know, the other races or other genders or gay or bisexual or trans. You know, there they perhaps is those small parts in each one of us. Um, and maybe like the, what are those tests called? The implicit association tests where you, you know, it's sort of testing your, um, your attitudes and 
things at a subliminal level. Um, so, you know, maybe that is some evidence towards that theory. Um, but yeah, my theory, maybe my theory is that the reason why we're so intolerant of it is because we see it in ourselves and we we aim to squash that in ourselves. And therefore, when we see it, I guess, like manifesting in other people's behavior, that's when we really despise it. Yeah, I wouldn't mind betting that is the case. Like, while I don't, I don't know for sure, say like, is of all, um, you know, the liberals out there are the ones who are most... Um, like classic yeah. liberal speak. Not, yeah, sorry. Yeah. We, for the most part, when we say liberal on this podcast, <laughs> we will be speaking of, you know, the classic yeah. version of a liberal. Um, not the Australian party. Not the Australian party. So more closely associated with progressive rather than yeah. um, conservative values. Yeah, liberal in a literal sense, meaning open and yeah, free. Sort of. Yeah, free speech, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, say so of all the liberals um, <clears throat> tending to be well-educated people are the ones who are most aggressive and domineering towards... Uh, say conservatives are they actually you know closetly quote unquote the ones who are most at risk of being or holding conservative values is that kind of what you're hinting at um yeah yeah i guess so oh it's just like you can really maybe you like you really know it or you can really connect with it and so you know i guess it's like just like the classic um uh, like the compensation like yeah someone who's like gay yeah, yeah that's <laughs> you know where i'm going with it yeah we like, can I say guess, like the, the the classic closeted gay there's like an archetype of the classic closeted gay who's really ardently against gay people and um like like overtly masculine and yeah, yeah. just yeah yeah like almost embodies an unnatural amount of sort of masculine tendencies yeah. to try to compensate for, you know, these deep-seated or whatever, mm. like potentially homosexual tendencies. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess what we're getting at there is like possibly that is what goes on at the political level. Like we're all hypo- we're just hypothesizing here. Yeah. But I think something that is that's really interesting about um, this essay as well is that he speaks about just how strong these forces are. Like Josh and I aren't necessarily sitting here and, um, and saying like, Oh, look at us. Like we don't fall into, you know, political tribalism. We most certainly do. Like we're, you know, we're, I don't know, as tribe as if we are as tribalistic as the next person, I'm not sure whether we might we might be more we might be mm. less um we try to work on being less that's mm. that's for sure um but yeah all that sort of aside what alexander goes into in the essay is that he there is something like nearly 50% of americans are young earth creationists i'm not sure how mm. these um these numbers have changed in recent years um, they might have actually gone backwards with Trump being president. I'm not sure. Um, backwards in the sense, in the sense of like there being more young Earth creationists than less. Um, really showing your biases there. <laughs> yeah, like I am 
<laughs> I hope we can actually read the read the descriptions because like I fit into the grey tribe description yeah, um for sure. like ten out of ten. <laughs> so uh the point I was getting at is Alexander speaks about how of his you know, of his friends he can't think of even one who is a young earth creationist and these people apparently represent one in two Americans. So he, he admits himself that like he is, you know, he's wealthy, he's highly educated, good with money. Um, a number of these things, he's a psychiatrist by trade and Scott, Scott Alexander is actually his pen name. Like he, his identity is not actually, um, publicly known. What is now though? It is yeah, now. Yeah, got out now. Oh, right. Yeah, they published that New York Oh, Times they did piece, publish it, did they? Yeah. Oh, hit piece. Yeah. <laughs> we, we won't get derailed there. But yeah, um, yeah basically, well, I will get derailed then. Um, <laughs> his blog was pulled down um, for a period of time because the New York Times, I believe, was going yeah, to post a piece um, that he gave, um, you know, some quotes for and reveal his identity um, because that's sort of part of what they said their their journalistic modus operandi was. However, um, yeah, because he's a psychiatrist, Scott Alexander can't um, yeah, write under his own name because that's it's a conflict of interest for his patients and things of that nature. So, yeah, anyway, there you go. It turns out. His name has been made publicly available, and that's somewhat disappointing um, from my own personal opinion. The point I was getting to is he makes this excellent analogy where there's a theory of dark matter where, you know, there's the dark matter universe that basically is or could possibly be coexisting interspersed with our current light matter universe, like the things that you see, the things that we can find, you know, on the level of physics and atoms and subatomic particles, like just everything we can find about the universe that we know is around us. It is possible that there is a dark matter universe interspersed with ours and we just really can't find it other than its um, gravitational forces. And the... The odds of this happening, um, I haven't made that point very well there at all. Um, a lot of scrolling and looking for specific quotes and mm-hmm. not getting to the actual point. But he references how that dark matter universe is akin to conservatives for him. Like he can go down to the shops, he can drive in his car, go to work, meet with friends, go out for dinner... And for the most part, like he never runs into someone who holds conservative political values, Hmm. even though there is apparently, you know, one half of the American population hold those values. And something that I kind of think is interesting is possibly you and I, Josh, the reason that we have the opinions that we do and want to see you know, maybe more of a bridging of these values is Mm. because we've existed in both worlds Mm. to some degree. I was going to say. Like, to quickly use a, um, uh, like an analogy from a book that I'm reading currently called Diaspora, which is by an Australian 
um, mm. science fiction author whose name, or sorry, whose face is not publicly known. I have this some kind of infatuation for like reading people who um, <laughs> don't reveal their identity. Yeah. Um, I think it's why I have like a anonymity fetish. <laughs> yeah. Like I have the Rick profile picture on my Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, like on, on his website, he says like you can type in um, Greg e- Egan, science fiction author, mm. Australia, like all these things. And he's mm. like, the idiots at Google, like do not show one of them that's actually me. Oh, really? Yeah. It's like, it's amazing. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. He clearly has some biases against Google and, but wants him to remain private as well. So that's, yeah. that's kind of cool. Anyway, in his book, Diaspora, um, there is a bunch of sort of futuristic civilizations. There's, um, there's human, well, like there's conscious beings that are being run purely on software. There are conscious beings, which are humans and they're sort of known as the fleshes. They're like, um, basically the closest version to hum um, future humans that exists in his story and the Gleisners, which are, um, people who sort of went a little bit in between what we'd consider like an android. They took human consciousness and put it into basically a robotic um, body. And what happens is in, in sort of part of the story is uh, Yatama, one of the the software characters, goes and visits the fleshes. And what has happened is the fleshes or the humans have got such advanced technology at this future time that they've been engineering themselves as you would like genetic engineering. But what they had done is they genetically engineered themselves and redesigned themselves to such an extent that they were loot. They were basically becoming different species. Hmm. And like people would say like it started as just like changing their hair, changing their eye color, like kind of like all these designer baby concepts. But then more and more um these different and like unnatural gene combinations would lead to unnatural cultural um you know echo chambers to some extent and these people were having less and less of an ability to interact Hmm. and what happened is this the fleshes then had a rising or a portion of the fleshes became known as the bridges who were basically a political group interested in breeding people that would function as go-betweens. So, yeah, like say you've got, you know, an Australian and a Chinese person who can't communicate. Like they just have their own pure language, whatever I'm using sort of language, just... Yeah. generally here yeah. and they were interested in breeding someone who could partially speak you know Australian or English and partially speak mm. Chinese and yeah like that's it's a really interesting book and I should would recommend everyone to read it mm. um, if that thing interests you but I guess what I'm getting at here is like you and I Josh mm. somewhat fall into what we might consider a bridger mm. because of yeah. our more conservative slash rural upbringings. Mm. Um, speaking of my own personally, you can speak of your own. Yeah. Um, and now moving to Melbourne, becoming 
more highly educated, advancing in a professional sense, a number of things like that, we've probably adopted more liberal, mm. progressive attitudes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask. Like, I'm interested because obviously in the USA, that is quite a clear, um, that's quite a clear phenomenon that goes on. You know, there's clearly red and blue states and there is clearly a lot more um, political partisanship and, you know, I'm, I've been over there. I, I experienced it. Um, and, you know, it's as obvious as the nose is on, on anyone's faces, really. Um, but I, I am curious, like, I think in Australia, I think the political partisanship or the political divide is probably, probably less so. Like, due to, due to a number of issues, like, it's not just because we're better people. Like, there's a lot of different moving parts. Um, the way, like, the the states and the, uh, like, I, I guess, like, the way our political structure is set up, there's there's a lot less, um, the, like, there's a lot less barriers to cohesion, I would say. And, again, just 50 states versus whatever we have, like, five or six or whatever. Um, again, that's just a lot less moving parts. Um, but yeah, I am curious to think, like just thinking about it now, like, is there difference, like, would it be fair to say like that Australia has like, say more conservative states and less conservative state or more say, um, liberal or progressive states, or do you think it's more just say, um, you know, in the, the hubs or the CBDs or the cities, it's obviously a lot more progressive and liberal in the literal sense. And then you go rural and it's probably a lot more, um, uh, what do you call it, conservative in the in the rural areas. Because um, coming from Castlemaine, I think Castlemaine's probably, you know, like an Austin, like a a blue in inside a red so it's like a little progressive hippie town inside like a country regional area so if you go half an hour up the road to bendigo where it's like extremely caucasian a lot less hippie a lot less going on um, it's probably a lot more conservative in general and again a lot of this is just speculation um i don't know the numbers i've lived in bendigo but yeah, it's interesting to think that. And I, I do think you're right. Like, I think living in these different places and having these different experiences um, has certainly shaped the way I think, like, politically and just in generally. Um, and I guess, like, on that point there, like, I think it's imp- – I think an important point that I want to make is that I'm – I think that the way you think in general is – largely the way you think like in in a political sense or like or like maybe this is a better way to put it your your political opinions and your your political standing or where you where you vote politically say is sort of just largely influenced by who you are as a person um and i think that's something that like jonathan Haidt has really looked into with his um, moral foundations. So in his book, The Righteous Mind, uh, he talks a lot about um, political reasoning just being like post hoc justification. And he uses the analogy of the elephant and the rider. So the elephant would be um, just like your your emotions and uh, your f- 
I, I wouldn't say it's like your emotions, but it's like the the accumulation of um, or the effect maybe of your emotions and your feelings. And then I guess is the rider like what the prefrontal cortex or like something like yeah, that? Yeah, it kind of represents the pre symbolic of the prefrontal yeah. cortex for the most part. What our more you know, the part of our brain that's associated with like higher order processing, mm. reason, rationality, long term goal setting, mm. tolerance, all these kind of these virtues that we aspire to. Yeah, so his po- his large point in the righteous mind, um, which the the subtitle is why good people are divided by politics and religion. Again, like a really solid, phenomenal book. But largely, his point is that all of what we're doing is post hoc rationalization for our emotions and our feelings, which, i.e., the elephant, and then the rider is again what what sort of labels and after the fact. Um, reasoning we are putting on top of our actions and our beliefs so he lays out his say five foundations and say if you're like quite a caring person naturally and again this sort of relates to i can tolerate anything be the out group if you're just if you've grown up and you've uh you're born just a naturally caring person uh and then later on you put that label of you know empathetic compassionate liberal on it or progressive that's you know again like to make the point you're not necessarily um say like an extremely uh tolerant person it's just that care is one of your personality dispositions and then you've just put this label on top of it after um so i think that's a really important point to make that a lot of like the political talk and your political behavior and how you vote politically is I think at least, and I largely agree with a lot of, you know, what he's written in the book and this blog that we've been speaking about is just your feelings and reactions and emotions um, and then putting, say, labels on it after the fact. Yeah, so I think you've raised a few good points there. So, for example, what hate does in the book is outline a model or a theory where the things that are valued by conservatives um, or liberals, Republicans, Democrats, whatever, are all what we would widely consider virtues. It's just that there is a grouping or a clustering of the types of virtues that um, someone that falls into each party might hold just slightly above. Because like, say Mm. there's... There's an like values and virtues are intention and conflict with one another. So, um, you know, there's the con the concept of say like equality, like we we are all equals. Mm. But then there's the concept of meritocracy or respect for authority or mm. you know holding people accountable to their actions. And then mm. there's all these things that are not directly parallel and mm. and somewhat conflicting or like if you take them to their logical conclusion you're gonna need to sort of give up one in the end they're going to contradict each other eventually yeah there's there's some kind of trade-off and i think maybe that's a a very important point to get at is regardless of whether you're red gray or blue 
what you want is probably pretty close to what everyone else wants. Mm-hmm. It's just that the way that we express ourselves, we magnify the differences between one another. So, for example, you know, a Blue Tribe member wants just generally a little bit more openness because they tend to be like possess openness as a personality disposition, mm-hmm. sort of relating to Josh's point. This person was probably bred and raised in a more open manner Mm. yet they arrive as an adult a voting Mm. adult and think no it's good to be open Mm. you know that uh, that's why i'm going to identify with the blue tribe Mm. and you know people should be more accepting and more tolerant more open yet what they're really doing is that post hoc rationalization of like this is how i am this is already what i believe so i'll find a group or party that believes that Mm. and um, yeah, so just to maybe highlight how some of the things can be intention without trying to beat this horse to death um, is like security and sort of, uh, you know, pride in one's nation and protection of, you know, the values of Australia. So Australian conservatives are sort of quite protect, like they recognize Australia has some pretty good things and mm-hmm. is quite protective of that and doesn't want um, excessive amounts of external influence and um, things of that nature. Now, sure, you could find the 1%, 0. 0.1%, whatever of, you know, Australian conservatives who are shouting, stop the boats and mm. do all that kind of stuff. Mm. But for the most part, conservatives, if you're um, you know, an Australian progressive are not that different from you. They are not bad people. They are not, mm. you know, for the most part. Um, yeah, just slightly prioritizing, hey, we have this good thing, let's look after it, as opposed to what a liberal might be, or progressive, sorry, might be um, trying to prioritize is like, hey, we have this good thing, we should share it because you know, other people are coming from um, less fortunate places in the world. Like, that that's really similar and it just diverges at a single point, you know, that, that magnification of small differences like we spoke about. Mm. Did you have thoughts? Or? Uh, are you going to go into something else? I do have something it. that might be yeah, slightly related is, and I think this ties in nicely with our meritocracy um, discussion about how kind of, the you know the fish or actually that we use the fish analogy with mm. um the meta narratives discussion yeah, yeah. That, um the meritocracy is an example of a meta narrative is like the fish born into the water is not aware of the water and i think an example could be seen here whereas uh, you were talking about state political histories mm. and the immediate one that sprung to mind is from memory uh, Queensland is mm. quite a conservative mm. state. Right. Um, you know, there's a lot of coal mining. Um, mm. There's a lot of just like open rural space in yeah. Queensland. Whereas you think about Melbourne and Sydney, all these, mm. you know, most livable cities in the world, mm. they're very, they're like cultural hubs. Yeah. They're, you know, yeah. there's good coffee, there's good, you know, Thai, there's good yeah. Italian food. It's just these you know, these melting pots of a different, um, a range of cultures. 
Whereas you go out to northern Queensland and it's mm. horses, cattle and dry earth. Mm. Um, and funnily enough, the political opinions um, you know, show that. So, for example, um, in the House of Representatives in 2001, um, the Liberal Party had... So now I'm talking Australian Liberal Party, the coalition had 19 representatives to seven for Labor. 2004, it was 21 to five. In 2007, Labor Party actually had more. It was 13 for the coalition uh, to 15. But then 2010, 21 to eight. 2013, coalition again, 22 to six. Coalition again in 2016, 21 to eight. 2019, uh, coalition again, 23 it's to Queensland six. Yeah, so yeah. this is Queensland, but this is um, of these sort of seven snapshots in the last 20 years, six um, mm. six times the, the coalition has really dominated the numbers mm. um, by an order of, mag- uh, sorry, by like two or three times mm. larger. And they only lost one by two seats. So, mm. I guess what I'm getting at there is there's some kind of selection bias going on. It's like, yeah. are people just being born in Queensland minute by minute, hour by hour and going, mm. hmm, which of these parties, you know, most strongly represent the values that I care about? Now, yeah. to some degree, they are doing that, but it's not in this even-handed, rational kind of, yeah. or quote-unquote rational manner it is i am born by parents Mm. who already live here therefore Mm. they probably identify with the the values that are you know demonstrated or embodied by the state of queensland Mm. typically you know conservative so i have that genetic influence i'm also surrounded by people who are conservative Mm. being fellow queenslanders and the likelihood of me growing up to be conservative is yeah. extremely high. And we can inverse that with, you know, inner Melbourne-born people. Yeah. If you're choosing to live in inner Melbourne or like your parents live in inner Melbourne, you're born into inner Melbourne and things like that, then odds are you didn't choose your political beliefs mm. to the extent that you think you did. Yeah, You just accepted them passed on from one generation or one peer group to the next yeah which again is like not say like a pointing the finger like we are products of probably exactly that and i think it's probably important to highlight that it's probably a a decent mix between say like how you grew up and the society that you grew up in and what state you're born in and the the moral foundations like the genetic moral foundations that hate speaks about because an interesting anecdote and again we've got to ensure that you know obviously anecdotes aren't the be all end all and they are they are exactly that just an interesting anecdote is like the difference between say like me and my brother benny so he like we go back and forth on like vegetarian and veganism and he's just like, yeah, I just couldn't care less. <laughs> and so, you know, obviously grew up in the same house and same family. And, um, you know, I tell him all the time, like yada, 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 you should do this or whatever. And he's just like, yeah, I just don't care though. <laughs> so it's obviously, it, it is interesting because it, 
again, coming back to hate and uh, all the other stuff we've talked about today, that there does seem there does seem to be some like genetic component that you are born with for your dispositions to say care about certain issues um and it's not like perhaps we'll just say them because it's not like he's not trying to say that a genetic component is being progressive like there's even more say like first principle labels or ways to think about them so the the five foundations that jonathan Haidt lays out is care fairness or fairness or proportionality loyalty or in-group authority or respect and sanctity or purity so after all say like their research and um, you know writing about it and thinking about it for years they've sort of reduced the foundations of say political thought to these five categories Um, and they're obviously not like hard and fast you know there's going to be different blends Um, but you know it's probably fair to say that progressives would be quite would have a strong affinity to say like the care foundation um or like the fairness one as well for sure versus um conservatives say they would probably be have a strong affinity to like sanctity and purity um or loyalty um and then you know you could talk about libertarians uh what would libertarians be fairness probably um authority or respect would probably be uh conservative yeah so hate hate goes over this in the book that basically um conservatives funnily enough sort of care about all of them a little more evenly whereas mm-hmm. um progressives heap their sort of their values or their values are more powerfully influenced by the fairness kind of concept um mm. fairness and care i believe um mm. from memory yeah and just examples of these so we're not sort of talking about abstract political theories is like that that kind of uh we see that on the more practical social level when someone's talking about <laughs> welfare or how much money we should be giving to the poor or how much should Centrelink be? Let's take an example like um, immigration, right? So like, should borders be open or closed? Well, first you would probably take issue with the question, but um, for the exercise, should borders be open or closed? Or say, should borders be more open or more closed than some reference point? Say like a conservative would look at that and they would be concerned with like, say like the sanctity or purity of the country and the loyalty to their fellow countrymen and not wanting to um say not wanting to what is it like like put australian values at risk of yeah. like um yep. some kind of uh, like intellectual physical kind of they don't want to lose it, toxicity yeah. like it is they think it has this essence that they don't want to... They're loyal to the essence of their nation or the identity of their nation as an Australian. And that's why people get, like, Southern Cross tattoos or Australian, you know, 100%. flag tattoos. Or they have, like, um, you know, decals or stickers on their cars mm. that, that show that. And, mm-hmm. you know, as an educated, you know, capitalised sort of weird person, mm. you 
you look at those cars and you think, oh, what an idiot. Mm. Like, mm. what a moron. Like, mm. yeah, driving around your Commodore with your big, you know, exhaust and your mags on it and, yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, your Australian, you know, Hold Southern on. Cross, sorry, sticker in the window. Yeah, um, like, yeah. that is just a demonstration of their values. Yeah, or, like, you go to America and it's American flags in um, front yards all, all the time, in, like, those in the red states. Um, but to go back to the example, so that's what the conservative person sees when you talk about should the borders be more open or more closed. They're seeing that the the more progressive or um, the more liberal person slash Labor Party um, would be seeing that as, okay, well, that's not really caring for those immigrants or that's not really fair on those immigrants. Like look at the, look at the disparity between wealth and look at what we have and look at how little they have. So you're really talking about two different visions and two different languages where you're just talking and that is why like a lot of the time it does happen. Like people in political discussions, they just talk past each other. Um, the funny, like the funny and ironic thing is people in politics are smart. They know this is the case. Like everyone, like Tony Abbott went to Oxford, but he still came across as like a, a goon because they just speak that political language language and they play that game. So like, that's the irony of it is that they know they're all playing this game. They know the other side, um, sees what they see and that they're seeing different things very rarely does someone in that position not understand the other person's actual point of view they understand that they're just playing the game that was just a little tangent but the point being just an example like that an immigration issue they're not seeing the exact same issue and they're not seeing the world the same way and they're not exactly talking about the same thing or at least in like you know contemporary say like street political arguments or say like Twitter or Facebook political arguments, they're legitimately talking about different things. One person is talking about the fairness and caring and the disparities in wealth between us and them. And the other person is talking about the sanctity and the purity and, um, you know, keeping this great country the way it is. When, like you said before, both of those endeavors are good things. Like neither one would disagree if they explicitly stated that um but they're literally just talking past each other yeah i think that's that's a point we really want to just like under underline underscore emphasize is highlight (laughs) when if you are having a discussion that becomes you know politically oriented and like as they say you know you shouldn't never raise politics or religion at the the dinner table or at dinner parties or whatever and because it does just quickly spiral and you find yourself going oh my god like josh josh must be so closed-minded that he doesn't want to let immigrants in or it's like Mm. josh is such a what a bad person because he doesn't want to let immigrants in or it's like you need to catch that you need to reframe that and recognize no josh like you need to retell the story in a positive sense where it is like oh josh is worried about these values or josh is considering um you know the the welfare that is already being distributed to the immigrants that we already have and would it be you know would it disincentivize them if they Mm. or something like josh is coming at this from just a slightly differing value system he is not categorically a bad person because we disagree. 
but this is the whole elephant and the rider thing. Mm. It's like we catch ourselves disagreeing with someone and we start <sighs> telling this story of I'm a good person, so people who agree with me are good and people who disagree with me are bad. But, yeah, it's, it's more complex than that. And finding the ability to have these kinds of conversations is is difficult, but we think really worthwhile. Hmm. Yeah, on on the conversations part of it and talking past each other, um, another fantastic book, which I think we have talked about before, is the three, what's it called? The Three Languages of Politics or something? Yeah, The Three Political Languages or, or something, something like yeah, that. Yeah, The Three Languages of Politics by Arnold Kling. So, again, just like a fantastic book where he, he just cuts exactly to the point of what people are talking about when they're having these contemporary political discussions so his the crux of his argument and the premise behind it all is that like we've sort of just alluded to is that people are literally talking about different things so progressives communicate along a oppressor oppressed axis so the author is talking about People coming from different political persuasions, communicating on these different axes. So, as a progressive, they're thinking and talking along this, say, oppressor and oppressed axis. Um, Conservatives, they're talking and thinking and communicating along this civilization barbarism axis. So, like on one end, you've got on one end, you've got being extremely civilized. On the other end of this axis that they're thinking on, they've got barbarism um, or things falling apart essentially libertarians and this is like the gray group um, classical libertarians they communicate along a liberty coercion axis so freedom versus coercion essentially Um, and when people are having these political discussions coming from these different political leanings uh, this is essentially what they're talking about and talking around um, and again, like an, another interesting thing to do will just be to observe political discussions that go on or not, not even like, I think the thing is like, I think political, I don't like to think about it in like boring Canberra political. That's not the way I think about political. I think about political as in, I think about political as living together with different ambitions and different visions, like as society. Um, you know, I don't think about all the BS that goes on in Canberra necessarily. Um, when I'm thinking about a political discussion, I'm literally thinking about, say, like two people on Sydney Road talking about racism. That, to me, is like a political discussion in my eyes. Um, anyway, to observe these conversations and see that if two people are coming from different political persuasions or standings or positions, sorry... One of them is probably thinking along, say, like, or one of them could be thinking along an oppressed oppressor axis. So all they're thinking of is, okay, well, who's being oppressed in this situation and who is the oppressor in this situation? Whereas, say, on the other side of it, let's say, like, the conservative side of it, they're thinking along a civilization barbarism axis. So... Well, if we just sort of let people run wild, um, you know, what is civilization going to look like? Or like we've got to conserve this civilization that we have built, um, which I guess is like the essence of conservatism. 
<laughs> and then, yeah, again, like the libertarians, like the classical libertarians who are, you know, concerned with, say, freedom and autonomy, they're thinking along a liberty coercion axis. So, the their North Star, and I, I would say that I largely fall into this group, and I guess you might be similar, and you are similar, you're nodding. <laughs> um, the libertarians, they're thinking along, or they're looking at with a vision, with a vision of like, okay, well... This person should be free to do what they want um, versus, you know, who's trying to, like, who are you to say what they should be doing? Like, that might be like a libertarian response. Yeah, I think I completely agree with all those points about how people's eyes glaze over when the topic of politics come up and they Mm. think of, you know, the channel, whatever news, Mm. crossing to Canberra and some boring, like, (coughs) whatever. But this is, you know what role you hear people talking about tech companies or mm. you know amazon being super rich or how much control should the government you know, yeah, speaking in yeah, the american yeah. sense have over elon musk and like these are th- i'm speaking about things that interest me here personally but mm. there's a ton of ton of different things so it's like just taking the the sort of um the arnold kling um framework it's like We've got Jeff Bezos who has a ton of money, okay? An absolute metric, like, F-ton. ton. <laughs> and you've got um, people coming on or approaching that from the oppressor-oppressed kind of yeah. axis thinking, well, he has so much power. He's, you know, monopoly over the market. Mm. Amazon should be broken up and... Um, you know, or like, look at the disparity. Yeah, the disparity between him and one of his employees. Yeah, and then there's these quotes about like, oh, he would need to spend hundred and fifty thousand dollars <laughs> every day in order to spend all this money, and every minute, I think it's yeah, something, more like, something, yeah. something crazy. So that's when people are coming at it from that lens, speaking that their particular language. But then, myself, I'm more concerned with freedom values where well sure like freedom allows a greater range of potential outcomes to occur that is like what freedom means almost by definition so that means you'll get people who do exceedingly well and people who definitely do like quite poorly Hmm. okay but i think sort of like overall people should be allowed to live their cell live their lives as the main directors and decision makers of their life. Mm. However, you know, then some of my values tip over into um, uh, progressive kind of values and I recognize the meritocracy and things of that a little bit. And, you know, some of these people were destined to sort of not do well, even if they had tried really hard. And so there's nothing or there are flaws in just the freedom, the purely freedom libertarian framework. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I got off my point a little bit there, but just talking about how something like Amazon and the wealth of Jess Bezos is a political issue a little bit. Or like yeah. Quite and extensively. Like that's um, largely what, you know, we I sort of wanted and we sort of wanted these conversations this podcast to be a tool for is to like take the i guess 
pretentiousness or pretentious <laughs> take the pretentiousness out of things like politics and economics and philosophy and like we spoke about in the last episode a little bit like people are already thinking in statistical manner they're just doing it poorly like people are already talking about politics they're just not recognizing it or perhaps like doing a poor job of it so yeah again i think a large part of you know that's why i hesitate to use labels like politics or you know whatever because there is all that baggage but i think it it is important to realize that you know when you get back to the roots of these things again the way i think about politics is just how a group of people ought to live together you could almost put it full stop there but i would probably add considering there are say like differences in opinion differences in visions and um, you know, different incentives that are in place and, you know, how do we live harmoniously together? And when you boil that down, that's, you know, that can be applied to anything like the workplace, living in housemates or whatever, um, your town, anything. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to make that point. I'll just quote something quickly before I think you're pulling up something. Um, just on Josh's point, and I completely agree, like, Politics isn't just something that your grandparents speak about or, you know, your parents lecture you about, tell you who to vote for. It is how we live together. And I really like this quote from Solomon Ash. Life in society requires consensus as an indispensable condition. But consensus, to be productive, requires that each individual contribute independently out of his experience and insight. When consensus comes under the dominance of conformity, the social process is polluted and the individual at the same time surrenders the powers on which his functioning as a feeling, thinking and thinking being depends. So Ash, just coming with his own biases, however, is very concerned about conformity and mm. you know how an individual fits into a group and can be coerced into not thinking as an individual or possibly thinking it as an individual, but then only speaking as a member of the group. Hmm. But the point I was getting at there is, like he says, society requires consensus as an indispensable condition, but consensus to be productive requires that each individual contribute independently out of their own experience and insight. And that's one of those things where we have tension. My quote-unquote lived experience is different to Josh's. And that puts us at somewhat of a disadvantage to getting all, getting along. But that puts us at an advantage when it comes to combining our insight and knowledge of the world and how to construct something better. Like there is these, these tensions at play here. And the more we can um, sort of bring it together and create structures that allow us to... Yeah, to do good things with our differences, the more you know, productive society we can create. Yeah, uh, I want to maybe go to down this path, like, because what came up then was thinking, you know, obviously, like the Solomon Ash was one of the three most famous psychology experiments ever done, and a lot of coming back to weird, right? So Western educated industrialized rich and democratic societies that sort of came out of this observation that a lot of these psychological findings didn't replicate, um, say, in like non-Western um, societies. So 
places where they're like less individualistic and more collectivist. Um, common ones are looking at, say, like Japan versus, um, or perhaps not Japan because they're a little bit more westernized, but say like South, maybe like Southeast Asia or something like that. Um, anyway, a lot of the findings were not replicating in other places and that is where this idea of weird societies came from. Um, and I think I want to get into it more in another podcast once I've finished this book, but it's interesting that, you know, it's some, or like I'm wondering how much the uh, phenomenons like that and these findings are, say, like, central or ubiquitous in human nature in general or how much things like that are just part of these weird societies um, and fitting in within our value framework. Pardon me, because it, it is genuinely like talking about talking about things with a different North Star. So in relation to someone, a different end goal. So whenever you might talk about something in, say, Australia, you might be talking about it with um, the end goal of individual well-being being maximised. However, that might not that might not relate too well in a, perhaps in a place like India, where individual well-being isn't the absolute north star in almost like every in- interaction, where it's like. Perhaps it's like the well-being of the family as the unit or as the metric of, you know, how good something is. Um, yeah, so I'm just interested, like, I don't know, do you have thoughts on that? What, like, for something like, let's talk about Ash specifically or the conformity stuff. Do you think, like, a lot of those findings uh, or some of the extrapolations that he pulls out are... Uh, like central to human nature or do you think that is perhaps more something that's isolated to weird societies so western educated industrialized rich and democratic societies i.e australia uk canada america yeah uh, i'm not sure it's a good question um i don't have tremendous concern however um if say Ash's findings don't replicate in more collectivist cultures because uh, like one of the sort of premises of this conversation is sort of like getting along in freer societies. Like given we are freer or more free Hmm. and therefore have like, yeah, it's just one of those things like where I get a bit frustrated when people like, you know, you see protesters in, you know, Melbourne or America being like um, talking about some kind of oppression or something like that. And I get that's the language of their politics, but it's like in a, in a society or a nation where like genuine oppression goes on, you wouldn't be allowed to go out and protest (laughs) on the streets. It's the irony, hey? Like if this was, you know, one Mm. of the Koreas, then... You would go, you know, you would disappear if you spoke yeah. out against your government. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. the fact you're allowed to protest and hold up signs saying like, you know, <laughs> the government is oppressing me is or, <laughs> or oppressing some group is a demonstration of freedom. Yes. So, um, yeah, I guess what I'm getting at there is I wouldn't be massively concerned if some of these findings don't replicate because mm. 
this conversation is mostly geared around people from weird nations. Yeah, I think like a point you bring up there that I perhaps want to talk about is um, the parable of the man slaying dragons that Douglas Murray talks about. Um, I won't try and I won't try and uh, replicate it here. <laughs> or repeat it here, but essentially the idea that once society gets to a level where things are going relatively well, that we perhaps might start to actively search for things going wrong to change. Um, And this, some people think, is a lot of the reason for the political unrest. And uh, an example might be... um, I think a good example is racism, right? So racism in Australia, pretty objectively looking at the data, and which is something that I have done, and experientially being someone of not white skin. <laughs> Anecdotally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Anecdotally as well. Um, you know, I'm, well, I'm 25 now, so I was born in 1995. Again, born in the country. And, you know, I could probably count on one hand the amount of times that I've experienced racism. Um, again, being like a somewhat, you know, I don't know, I don't know what you call me. Like, a, not a white person. Let's just put However, it that way. then someone would then come through and say, but it's because you're a male. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, they just, yeah, they find a way to make me a victim is the point. Um, but, yeah, I... I have anecdotally, I've experienced racism in my life literally less than five times um, in 25 years. Living in the country, playing sports, you know, getting around. Like, I, I've not isolated myself, let's put it that way. And then also looking at the data, recent data, and where we are today as a country. Of course, racism isn't obliterated, like, it's still around. However, when you look at, say, the political unrest or some of the rhetoric that was rolling around after George Floyd, like, you would think it's occurring, like, on an unbelievable magnitude, considering some of the rhetoric that was going on. Um, like, I don't know, I hesitate to get into it, but the the whole 437 Indigenous deaths in custody, like, th- th- there's a lot of nuance to that number, let's put it that way. Like, people made it out to be, like, Cops are walking up to Indigenous people and shooting them in the head. Um, that is the way they spoke about it. One of the there was a woman that went on Q and A and said, literally said, "Stop killing us," like making it out like it's someone walking up and putting a bullet in your head. Anyway, that like for one thing, I don't think speaking about it that way is helpful. Hence, why we have two hour long or ninety minute long conversations about nothing. Um, but the point being that. It is nowhere near as bad as people would have it make people would make it out to be. It's nowhere near as bad as it used to be. Everything has pretty objectively gotten better, like in a general societal sense, probably bar like depression, anxiety, like some of these um, psychological disorders, suicide. Um, you know, there's definitely something things to be said about where we're going with like some of the neoliberalism stuff that we spoke about or um, capitalism once it's extrapolated out to its end. Um, Like, you know, there's things to be worried about. Let's put it that way. However, things have gotten extremely, extremely, extremely better. Yet, this rhetoric about 
being a victim and things being horrible is still just as prevalent as it's always been and perhaps maybe getting worse. Like one thing is when you spend time in a place like Mexico, there's next to zero complaining and the difference in living standards is completely, um, there's a large disparity in that. So the point being is that it seems to be the case that once society gets to a place where things are doing a lot better and better and better and there are objectively like less things to worry about um, on a day-to-day experiential level that you sort of look for things to go wrong and you look for places to be a victim and you look for problems to fix. Yeah, that's probably what I want to say. No, I think I think there's definitely something in that. And just when you speak about no complaining, like I think back to, to like literally just going home um, and like spending time with my grandparents and um, like them being in their late 70s. Oh, I think that's correct. Um, people are always telling them like why, like they still work, like still work, which is blows my mind. People are always telling them like, why don't you just, you know, take the pension and none's always like, well, just cause like, cause I can work, I will still work until mm. I can't. And you know, the follow-up question isn't like, well, like why aren't you aren't like traveling? Why, why are you just like sitting in Akron with a population of like 10 people and like eight of them are Purcells? Like, <laughs> like why, why are you here? And Nan's always like, because, you know, like I have it, it great here. Like it, mm. I guess what I'm getting at here is like there's this general <coughs> attitude of appreciation and, mm. and I obviously like think the world of my Nan. So, that, you know, that's coming from bias perspective. But I guess what I'm getting at is like I then speak to people in um, Melbourne where things are probably better off and they, you know, they're not getting up at the crack of dawn to go and work on the farm like my nanny's in her late Mm seventies. They're going to an office job where they can rock up at 9am and get paid Mm. um, twice as much as my nan. And they're going, I can't wait to fucking get out of here. Like Mm. this place is so like, can't wait till I can travel and go off to like, you know, go and ski in Japan and Mm. go and, and I, I think what I'm just saying there is like it is I'm highlighting that I agree with your point. Like mm. there is some level of y- you you get to an extent where you are where you are quite well off and you just all you see is more and more problems. Mm. And yeah. yeah, but also like you you know, these tensions okay, like perhaps to call it a feature would be maybe fair. Maybe not a feature, but like if had the choice, it's maybe not something you would want to get rid of. You would just want to temper it a little bit and, you know, add perspective where possible, um, you know, which is things like Peter, Peter Ridley, uh, sorry, Matt Ridley and Pinker are doing with writing these books about how the world's gotten so much better. Um, so you might not necessarily want to get rid of that altogether, which is, again, not what I'm advocating for. I'm advocating for adding perspective because bringing it back to politics again, these tensions do need to exist. Like the conservative um, progressive tension is a perfect one that needs to exist. Like the progressives, we need them around to push and to care for the people at the that didn't win the genetic lottery or didn't re- didn't win the geographical lottery um, to be born into 
you know, Melbourne or even Australia. Um, we need those people to advocate for people at the bottom end of societies. Um, similarly, we need conservatives to advocate and conserve tradition and society that we've built and just like what is good like yeah. not even worrying about tradition just like holding on to what is good whereas mm. progressives are going this can be better yeah yeah so there there does need to be that tension and i think again this speaks to like the the idea that i've <laughs> inserted into nearly every conversation of the comparative advantage or d- division of labor like i think there's there's going to be people born with different dispositions and different ideas and caring about different things inherently and naturally like you're going to be born different ways we're not blank slates i i believe that and i think that's good evidence to say that given that's the case i think it makes sense to try and maximize what your affinities are or maximize what your characteristics are and you know sort of go all in on that almost um and so for someone that might be devoting their life to a charity because they're really strong on the care foundation and the fairness foundation. Whereas for others, you know, that might be devoting their life to whatever it may be like an an organization or a corporation and say like pushing conservative values and trying to hold on to traditions of marriage or monogamy or whatever it may be. And then the, the balance of those two sort of brings us closer to some sort of equilibrium or some sort of moderate position where hopefully society can flourish and yeah it'll all even out eventually is sort of what i'm getting out there yeah i think even out is probably like not quite the right Hmm. term i know that's yeah i know what you're getting at um yeah it's maybe my personal sort of feeling about this all is you should be allowed to chase your own personal affinities and be as much of an individual as you like provided you still have some ability to interact with and like bring value back to the group Mm. it's i've i don't know how to quite explain it but it's kind of like the group allows you to be an individual by not sort of like by by being a group, it has more power than you. Like, just think of it as a group of individuals, mm. like 10 people. They are not jumping on you and holding you down and telling mm. you to be this way. Like, right. society, like, I think how we live in the the Western, you know, weird world would be, like, you are allowed to go and be an individual, but I still think there is some kind of, obligation you have to the group and this kind of maybe underscores um the communitarian kind Mm. of aspect that you spoke about um Mm. i forget his name sandal sandal yeah that sandal sort of preaches um and i think that that is personally my model um that people should be yeah as free to flourish as an individual as they like provide they don't lose contact with the group um, mm. and it's, I'll maybe highlight a few points that I just kind of think are interesting to finish on. Mm. Um, personally, I feel like I have, like I have traveled massive terrain. Like, I guess one of the things that really interests me about ideas and just intellectual things is I, 
I feel like it can travel in some kind of like geographical sense or not geographical, like I can travel in some sense without moving, I guess. Mm. That may, like, yeah, 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 no, yeah. I'm not thinking about like I can read a book and pretend I'm in America, but it's like I can experience can a range of yeah. different things and be influenced by a range of different things without moving. Yeah. And I just think like how the very same physical world you know, where I've lived um, around where I grew up and um, the northern suburbs of Melbourne that I have inhabited for the last, you know, 15-odd years or, you know, 28 years going back home, um, how it has just been perceived differently by me as my viewpoint and world worldview and perspective has changed. Mm. And what I guess I'm getting at there is you know, coming from more conservatively influenced to being more progressively influenced to then just trying to find, I'm not even going to say which way I'm influenced now because I think I've, you know, got my own kind of... You've transcended labels. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I've reached enlightenment. But <laughs> I, I find this a massive personal, um, an issue of personal interest, it's like you were speaking about, is having... Uh, being grateful for and having gratitude for the way the world is and the benefits mm. that we have. Like I was literally sitting in my car this morning mm. and the maps told me like which way to turn. I was like, I just had that moment of being <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. this is crazy. Yeah. Like I'm driving this, like this machine that is made up of like hundreds of, you know, parts, mm. not one of which I would know how to work. Yeah. yeah. And like it is able to take me at a massive rate of knots. And then I have my phone they're with me, tell, like speaking to me which way to turn. Not even True. considering how many other people are running the same kind of map software at the mm. same time and it's functioning perfectly. Like mm. I had that moment of just like pure gratitude. However, something that I really love, and that's kind of in some sense that, that gratitude is a conservative kind mm. of yeah. viewpoint. Like it is... Hey, things are good. Like, let's let's be grateful for it. Not shake things up too much. Not be too yeah, it is drastic a, in our views. To like insert one little thing in there. Like my criticism all the time of, say, like really staunch progressives is just that they're not grateful. That's the word that I use. Yeah. No, I think I think you're completely correct. But that highlights probably the second point I was getting to is, um, what I absolutely love about the you know, this whole computer science tech kind of world that I'm progressively exploring is it is like, yeah, massively sort of progressively influenced mm. because it's like you, I was, I watched a video yesterday is one of part of one of my subjects that literally said like computer science is about looking at the world and being like dissatisfied and, mm, interesting. and like it was framed in such a positive way, mm. just being like, it can be more right. than this. Like, right, right, what right. can we build? What can we construct? Yeah. What can we do to take, you know, human well-being to 10x this? And I'm really enjoying that process of balancing those two things. Sitting mm. in my car, being incredibly grateful and trying to capture a lot of the insights from meditation mm. and things like that. But then also being like, no, I'm a critically thinking, like, you know, educated perceptive person we can do better than this mm -hmm. like yeah um and the last 
thing I want to highlight is perfectly aligning with Scott Alexander's theory of outgroup being based on small differences. Your anecdote about Benny is mm. Benny is your <laughs> he's your outgroup. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you are not funnily enough. Yeah, you are distinguishing yourself. Was it Benny? Sorry, who yeah, speaking yeah, about yeah. with the vegan? That was Benny? Yeah, yeah. Although, like, yeah, not not the perfect analogy because we line up quite similarly, um, you know, personality wise. But like, Nico would probably be a good example. <laughs> um, and like, Nico's red tribe. <laughs> yeah, Benny's blue yeah. tribe. You're grey. Yeah, I won't get too much into it. <laughs> I don't know if he listens. <laughs> Can I read out the descriptions? I yeah, think yeah, the descriptions go, are so go, go, funny. Go, go, go. Um, and this might be... I'll probably stuff these up a ton of times, but like <laughs> this might just show my nerdiness is that I think these descriptions are funny. So this is in... Um, I can tolerate anything except the out group. The Red Tribe is most classically typified by conservative political beliefs, strong evangelical religious beliefs, creationism, opposing gay marriage, owning guns eating steak, drinking Coca-Cola, driving SUVs, watching lots of TV, enjoying American football, getting conspicuously upset about ter- uh, terrorists and commies, marrying early, divorcing early, shouting USA is number one and listening <laughs> to country music. The blue tribe is most classically typified by liberal political beliefs, vague ag- agnosticism, supporting gay rights, thinking guns are barbaric, eating irregular which I don't know what that is, <laughs> drinking fancy bottled water, driving Priuses, reading lots of books, being highly educated, mocking American football, feeling vaguely like they should like soccer, but never really being able to get into it, getting conspicuously upset about sexists and bigots, marrying later, constantly pointing out how much more civilized European countries are than America and listening to everything except country. And man, like there's just... I think there's so much in this. Yeah, yeah, like the, the whole, the conspicuously lines are so good. Yeah. Um, but this, <laughs> this third one, um, yeah, th- this gets me. Uh, there's a third partly formed, oh, sorry, there's a partly formed attempt to spin off a grey tribe typified by libertarian political beliefs, Dawkins style atheism, vague annoyance that the question of gay rights even comes up, <laughs> eating, eating paleo, Drinking Soylent, which I do know what that is. <laughs> calling in rhymes on Uber. Reading lots of blogs. Calling American football sports ball. <laughs> getting conspicuously upset about the war on drugs and the NSA. And Big listening guess. to Filk. But for our current purposes, this is distracting. Yeah. So, uh, the two points that massively stick out to me is like the Dawkins style atheism oh, and getting conspicuously oh. upset about the war on drugs. Yeah, yeah. The and war bleeding lots of blogs. Yeah, yeah, the blogs. That's you all over. Um, so, yeah. Thank you for Scott Alexander for carrying me today. <laughs> I came into this one feeling a little weathered and oh, really? um, apologized to everyone for... No, I think it was good. I think that went for ages but not that that's any indication of quality <laughs> yeah because i was thinking what i was going to say half the time and just being oh, like Ugh. um but yeah hopefully i don't know thanks for everyone that has listened so far this is the seventh episode and we've got a surprising number of people listening so we really appreciate it um and yeah i, I don't know just to like reiterate what we are trying to do here if anything at all is just like I guess I like create a space where we can talk about these ideas and invite these ideas out into our networks because I, you know, I think they're not talked about enough and, you know, these are things that we really care about and 
you know, we're obviously going to get some things wrong and that's that's part of the whole process and yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm glad you highlighted the, the things wrong thing. Um, that, <laughs> because you're yeah. so wrong and everything, so I'm glad you said it. <laughs> yeah, like no, I guess that's, that's a conversation that Josh and I have been having off air a bit is it's like, yeah, lots of people have been listening and... And we've also been re-listening to the yeah. episodes and critiquing them and listening to things and being like, oh, not only did we not explain that well, but it's like we may have even just given an opinion that we think is like out and out wrong yeah. even weeks later yeah. or being worried about how it might be interpreted or, or just all these things. And yeah, maybe we just want to highlight like we are trying, we are trying to do this in good faith mm, and yeah. we completely understand some things might come off um, hopefully not like crass or too poorly, but mm. if they do, um, yeah, like always feel free to reach out and just yeah. say like what your interpretation of something was. Mm. Um, and yeah, we're, we'd be always happy to readdress it or open up some kind of conversation or dialogue because that's, that's what we're trying to do. We're just like mm. trying to think better thoughts, trying to express those thoughts and trying to, to hear the thoughts of others. Mm. Sick. See you in the next one. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for joining the conversation. If you would like to connect, please reach out through info at philosophyau.com. Thanks again and see you at the next episode.